0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am
1: joined by my co-host. i Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and today I'm working from 3 to 3.04 p.m. Oh, so we have
0: two good minutes here coming up from Jason before uh everything completely falls apart on this podcast. You guys gotta
1: have to carry it. Uh, once it, once I clock out at 3:04, it's on you two. So.
0: Yeah, well we'll we'll do what we can there, Jason. So, uh what is what is that about? What are we talking about? Well, first, we are kicking off our 11th season. We are at season 11 and we have just done a whole season about many different years. Looking back, it was a special season for our 10th season, looking back at all the years that we'd previously talked about. And now we are getting back to our regularly scheduled format with a whole season on one particular awesome movie year, and that is the year 1980. And so we are starting, as we always do, with the box office champion, Although, as we've done uh, in in at least one other instance, we are not talking about the number one movie at the box office, which was The Empire Strikes Back, because we've talked extensively about Star Wars. Uh, If you haven't heard, in our 1977 season, we covered the original Star Wars and talked a lot about the franchise as a whole. So we wanted to get something different in here. So We are talking about the number two movie at the box office in 1980, which is the comedy 9
1: to 5. Jason's inspiration for his two-minute workday. Boom. Gotta do whatever you gotta do. Uh, look, Empire Strikes Back, my favorite, and I've said it on the Star Wars episode, of the of the Star Wars trilogy times 100 now. So I will be campaigning for us to do that as a bonus episode. Uh, as we know, not directed by George Lucas and not the Phantom Menace, so I think it's worth covering. But yes, this is this is something different the first mainstream female-driven comedy to break the $100 million barrier, and one that would probably be released as a streamer today.
0: Yes, it is kind of amazing. And we've talked about this in multiple instances in past seasons when we look at movies that were huge box office hits, whether that's our particular picks for box office champion or it's just movies that we're talking about in other episodes that made a lot of money. Uh, I remember when we talked about, like, uh, The Goodbye Girl, I think, and just astoundingly how much money that
1: movie had made. (laughs) I wish there was still an audience, a theatrical audience, for uh, movies like this, you know, no matter how I feel or you feel about this movie. I wish that the theater-going experience was as essential to society as it once was.
0: Yeah, I agree. And you're certainly right that this is the kind of movie that would most likely go directly to streaming. Or even if it got a, a small theatrical release, would not be the number two movie at the box office behind a Star Wars movie uh, in in 2022. But it was in 1980. It grossed 103.9 million dollars. You know, in 1980 dollars on its budget of 10 million dollars. So not only was it a big hit, but like hugely, hugely profitable. There uh, certainly, you know, uh, a, a major return on investment there for the studio. And uh, it was a big pop culture sensation. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song, of course, for the theme song written and sung by Dolly Parton, who is also the co-star of this film. And, And I saw that and I thought, how is it possible that this song, which is one of the most iconic film theme songs in cinema history, did not win the Oscar? And so I was looking up, what did win the Oscar for Best Original Song? Well, it was fame. Another of the most iconic movie theme songs in cinema history. So I suppose if you're going to lose to something, that's a legit
1: thing to lose to. Josh, I looked it up too. Did you notice any of the other songs nominated?
0: Yeah. And also Willie Nelson's On the Road Again, which um, is, is hugely famous, which is, I feel like, famous more... Divorced from its movie origins. I didn't yeah. even know that, that song was from the movie. Honeysuckle Rose. Is that from
1: Honeysuckle Rose? Is that the name of the movie? I don't know.
0: I think so. Yeah. Not a movie that's really, you know, stood the test of time uh, as much as the song has, but
1: certainly a very, very well known song. So quite a category that. Year. And all three are awesome songs. I don't know. Faye might be my least favorite of the three. We didn't mention the other two, but these are great songs. This is a, a strong category in 1980.
0: Right. Yeah. The other two, one of them was another song from fame. And I forget what the fifth one was, but it wasn't a well-known song, but considering how that category is, is very, I don't know, uh, uneven. And a lot of the time you can look back at the songs nominated and and you haven't heard of right, any of them.
1: Right. These three have stood the test of time in pop culture, in the lexicon.
0: They have indeed. Um, and so the song was also very successful aside from the movie Spent two weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart, uh, was nominated for four Grammys, and won two of them for Country Song of the Year and Female Country Vocal of the Year. So massively popular, but alongside the movie. Uh, I mean, I feel like this is not like that Willie Nelson song, something that um, has sort of
1: eclipsed the film that it came from necessarily. Uh uh, it was. I might. No. I, I think the song has eclipsed the movie. When you think of nine to five, you think of the song, and then it leads into the movie, as opposed to vice versa. Also, this was the People's Choice 1981 favorite motion picture song. So that's a thing it won. Also.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you're you're not necessarily wrong. I think it's not like that Willie Nelson song where the song is so well known and the movie is something that almost no one remembers. I think a lot of people remember this movie and it is still a big pop culture thing. but you're probably right that the the song is a bigger pop culture thing and there are definitely people who know this just as a Dolly Parton song and maybe aren't that familiar with what the movie is. Um that is true. But I think it helps that Dolly Parton is the star of the movie or one of the stars of the movie. So she's more connected to it. you know, when she sings that song, it's always in reference to something that she did. Uh, and this was her first, feature film role. And uh, the idea for this film, uh, although it was written by uh, the director Colin Higgins and uh, Patricia Resnick, the original idea came from Jane Fonda, the co-star wanting to make a film about working women and uh, kind of uh, figuring out how to do that and ultimately deciding that it should be a comedy. And uh, of course, Lily Tomlin, the third major co-star of this film, the three of them playing secretaries who uh, get some revenge on their boss, played by Dabney Coleman.
1: Yeah, so Josh, a few uh, add-ons there, like you're saying. So it was originally written as a drama when it was Patricia, what was her last name there, Josh? Patricia, Patricia Rez. Yeah, she wrote the first draft, and then when Colin Higgins kind of wrote the next draft, he turned it into a comedy And there is a quote from Jane Fonda. uh, Okay, what you have to do is write a screenplay, which shows you can run an office without a boss, but you can't run an office without the secretaries, which is, um, you know, I guess female empowerment uh, in in that time. Although now you can have uh, now get this female bosses and male secretaries. Did you guys know that?
0: Yeah, you can, mm-hmm. and I think this is this movie is known for being about female empowerment, but it's also generally just about worker empowerment. Yep, and and we do see um, that there are certainly male employees who are you know in the lower ranks at this company, and they also benefit from the eventual uh, progressive changes brought about by our main characters here.
1: But it's strange because we're talking about this like it's an office place comedy, which is what I thought it would be and was what I was hoping it would be. But it strays so far from that for so long of the movie that I kind of lost my way with it or it lost its way with me. I wish it was more exactly set in the office. We've talked about office space on this, you know, and all these other, but it just goes in such a crazy direction throughout this movie.
0: No, I absolutely agree with you. And I I think uh you know we'll get into that more, but I too thought of this as an office-based comedy and was really enjoying it when it was that and it gets so wacky and so cartoonish that I feel like it does lose a lot of that effective satire as it goes along. I think it brings some of it back um when it eventually gets itself back into the office, but it it definitely is is a bit lost there, especially uh in the middle of the movie. And critics at the time, uh, a lot of them actually felt uh similarly about that. The critical response to this movie was fairly mixed. Uh, it got a thumbs down from Siskel and a thumbs up from Ebert, but both of them were, you know, lukewarm on it. Ebert was just slightly more enthusiastic. And both of them were, it, it isn't quite at the same level as when we talked about Space Jam and you watch Siskel and Ebert talking about Space Jam and they're just gushing over the movie star potential of Michael Jordan um, in in a very, very misguided way. Uh, Dolly Parton has had more of a film career than Michael Jordan, but certainly did not go on to become like a major movie star or have this huge acting career. But they spend much of their segment talking about how great Dolly Parton is and uh, in, in this as her debut and how this is going to be the beginning of an amazing career for her, which was not quite what it was. So Siskel in particular basically said that Dolly Parton was the only good thing about this movie. Mm. Um, Ebert, mm. again, was was more, <laughs> yeah, and there's there's a little of that. There's more than a little of that in their reasoning. Uh, if you can hear the noises that Jason's making.
1: No, it's just funny the way that you, you heard the noise and you, you, you juxtaposed it to their, uh,
2: yeah, he worked it right in there. That's good.
1: Well, (laughs) Dolly Parton. (laughs)
0: I mean, I, I assume that was the source of those noises, but maybe it wasn't, but either way, Siskel and Ebert. Definitely, we're making some noises like that in their <laughs> private moments with this film. So I, I tried to kind of trim that. E- Ebert spends a lot of his review talking about how great Dolly Parton is, and not just because of her attractiveness, but because of her charisma and uh, sort of effervescence on display in this film. But in more general terms, he said, nine to five itself is pleasant entertainment, and I liked it, despite its uneven qualities and a plot that's almost too preposterous for the material. The movie exists in the tradition of 1940s screwball comedies. It's about improbable events happening to people who are comic caricatures of their types. And like those 40s movies, it also has a dash of social commentary. The whole kidnapping sequence moves so far toward unrestrained farce that it damages the movie's marginally plausible opening scenes. But perhaps we don't really care. We learn right away that this is deliberately a lightweight film despite its superstructure of social significance and making the necessary concessions, we simply enjoy it. So I think he's addressing what we were just talking about a little bit ago.
1: Yeah, I cared. It it uh, was already going downhill for me in that sequence, which is just one on top of the other, on top of the other is so lazy and long and horrible. It, it ruined the movie for me. I'm not gonna lie. Like it was already going downhill. And then I was just like, why is this? How is this? the way that we made this, you know? So I disagree. I do think Dolly Parton's great. I think, I mean, look, she's a national treasure. We know that. But I think she showed real movie star potential here. And the last thing was, Josh, these 1940 movies um, that starred, like, had three female leading roles. That was, like, kind of a big trend in the 40s, huh? Yeah,
0: I think, and I, I don't know if it was Jane Fonda or Colin Higgins who had said that they were actually hoping to capture some of that spirit. Um, And and I think they do. And I think you can watch those kinds of movies, as Ebert says, and those are often very silly. Um, But I think this movie does go too far in that direction, especially because it's so good in the beginning. It seems like it's a very smart satire. And it's funny. It's not a lecture. It's clever. It's got these really enjoyable characters, but it's also... Uh, you know, saying something that feels real, if a bit heightened, and then it just goes into complete cartoonishness. And I think I was more willing, or maybe I was more entertained than you were. Once I I had that adjustment that Ebert talks about, when you realize, okay, this isn't it isn't what it seemed like at first. But maybe I can still be kind of entertained by what it is. But I'm with you that it, it really. I was very disappointed as that was happening, and I'm sitting there thinking, uh-oh what is happening with this movie? Where is this going? Um, and and it did lose me a lot. Maybe brought me back a little, thanks to the charisma of the stars.
1: Well, it was so well drawn. Like you're saying, you have these really uh, defined characters, great actors playing them, right? We know Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, legends. And as I already stated, the national treasure, Dolly Parton, right? And Dabney Coleman, you know, um, look, it's 1980. Maybe they made him a little too broad as like bad guy, you know, sex, uh, sexual harasser boss. Maybe not. I don't know. I wasn't around. I was a baby then Josh. I was a baby in 1980, but he's still very good, you know? So like I was really enjoying those things and like the conflicts between the women at the workplace. And obviously I knew they were going to team up against the boss, but it just, like that sequence that we're talking about, that uh, whatever dream sequence or fantasy sequence, the car was already driving so far off the cliff. That's just where it jumped. So it was losing me so much. And I wonder if I just was mediocre on the beginning, if I would have liked this movie a little more. But because I liked the beginning so much, I was so disappointed with how it turned out. It just totally just died for me right there.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that's fair. And to me as I was watching and we're talking about uh you know the three main characters, they they get stoned and they have these long fantasy sequences about what they would do to the boss if they could. And I thought those were all pretty dreadful, but I was still at that point like I I was into the movie up until like that moment and even at that point, I thought, okay, we're going to have these silly fantasies, and then we're going to get ourselves back on track, and that's really not what happens. Right. But I was still going with it for a little while at
1: that point. Yeah, they didn't recover. You're right. Afterwards, they didn't recover either. But anyway, Josh, read more of your flim flam filmsy reviews. All right, <laughs> that's thank you for that endorsement.
0: Um, Kevin Thomas in the L.A. Times was more overly positive. He said. The notion of Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton cast as secretaries who declare war on their sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot of a boss is pretty funny in itself. And in 9to5, they deliver the goods in high comic style, scoring some points for women's equality in the office. 9to5 appears to be an audience pleaser that never misses an intended laugh. However, it strays so far from reality for so long that it threatens to become mired in overly complicated silliness and to lose sight of the serious satirical points it wants to make. Happily, it does pull together for a finish that's as strong as it is funny. In short, its stars are more satisfying than their material, as good as it so often is. I'm not quite as enthused as he is, but I feel like his his point gets to what I'm saying, that, that eventually- I came a little bit back around to it.
1: Well, I mean that that quote that he had in there—the hypocritical, bigoted, sexist, right—that's what right. Lily Tomlin calls him in the fantasy sequence, correct? And that became like a famous quote, if I'm not mistaken.
0: So. Yeah, in fact, the the DVD that I uh, borrowed is the uh, sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical, bigot edition. Is what they label oh, boy. it when nice. they when they
1: re released it there. So well, I, definitely a famous quote. I mean yeah man look even when you were reading it and it's like three underappreciated secretaries team up to get revenge on their bigoted boss i was like man this could be a really fun workplace movie and then just it goes so far out of the workplace and not just like with those fantasy sequences but with what happens before which is farcical and what happens after which is just ridiculous and makes me not like the characters that by the time we got back to the office, I was just like, you all suck. And I don't care what happens to any of you at this point. Oh, wow. See, I never felt that I
0: didn't like the characters. I felt like the tone of the movie was broad and the things that they were doing were were ridiculous but I still always found them likable as people and and in the performances of the three main stars. So maybe that was the difference, is that even when I thought the tone and the plot were
1: stupid, I still liked the characters, and so that entertained well, me enough. Well, I, Josh, I would have to say yes. Dabney Coleman, bad boss. Should Jane Fonda try to have shot and murdered him? Probably not. Not likable. I mean... Was she really trying to murder him, though? I mean,
0: she shot real wide there. She's just trying to scare him and get him.
1: Literally, Uh, her fantasy sequence was hunting him. And then she. Her fantasy, though. But then she does it. Then she does it. So.
0: I mean, she does it in a a way, like, visually, that mirrors the fantasy sequence from a cinematic standpoint. But is she really trying to kill him? I didn't think so. I didn't get that.
1: The actors are so much better than the material.
0: They are. That is certainly true. I will agree with you there. And that is what Kevin Thomas is saying as well. And so then I I probably shouldn't have been surprised by this, but I was still a little surprised that at least two reviews of the handful that I looked up, you know, exhibit their own terrible condescending sexism. So (laughs) the perfect (laughs) response to that. So I kind of cherry picked just the, not the most awful stuff here. Oh, we want the
1: most awful stuff.
0: It's, yeah, we'll see. Vincent Canby in the New York Times said, forget the energy crisis, inflation, recession, job shortages, the disappointing sales of the Chrysler K, urban blight, and the price of gold. There's no problem with capitalism that three liberated Nancy Drews can't solve if they don't have to keep running out to get coffee for their superiors. The three actresses make an attractive team, but neither the screenplay, by Colin Higgins and Patricia Resnick, nor the director, Mr. Higgins, uses them very effectively. It's clearly a movie that began as someone's bright idea, which then went into production before anyone had time to give it a well-defined personality. There's some sort of lesson to be learned from the fact that the biggest laughs in 9 to 5, as well as in several other feminist comedies, depend on enthusiastic, unabashed sexism. Uh, and he has a lot of stuff in there about Dolly Parton's appearance that I
1: like That's what I was gonna ask you. Was there stuff about her um oh, yeah, body her buxomness or and
0: and and a reference to uh, how she if she looks like that, she shouldn't be surprised that men are harassing her, essentially, mm. okay. Um, <laughs> what uh, did you find
1: any female reviewers?
0: Uh, not contemporaneously, or at least not that, uh, were available for me to, to look up. I wanted to see if there was a Pauline Kale review and there may have been, but, um, the letterboxd account that I rely on for uploading Pauline Kale reviews did not have one there. So. Mm.
1: So give us more Vincent Canby quotes then.
0: I, you know, I don't have the whole thing in front of me right now. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do a bunch of quotes about Dolly Parton's appearance. That's why I left those out of the Ebert review, even though that's positive. And another review that I looked up in the spectator, uh, was just full on anti-feminism for the entire review. And I, I just felt like we didn't need to quote that. So I
1: think, I honestly think it would have been good to quote those just to show what they were coming up against at the time as three female stars, you know?
0: Yeah, they absolutely were. Is that not just Hollywood, which uh, presumably you know is a very sexist place, and you know the only way that this movie gets made is because Jane Fonda is in this position as such a big successful star for uh, you know 15 years yeah. or whatever that she's able to produce her own films, and Dolly Parton is already a huge star in country music, and Lily Tomlin is a huge comedy star on TV. And they they have to combine all of that power in order to make a movie like this. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's unfortunate because I mean, I did want I knew that we would get those reviews. Like, I'm sure there is a lot of references to Dolly Parton's cleavage or something like that, right? And it's like at this, she's a very physically beautiful woman, and I think like you can use that sexuality to showcase that character who is so much more than that. And she's not treated as much more than that. And that's where we were at the beginning. And then it just, like I said, it just like loses its way. You know, I think had we had those clear lines, you know, Jane Fonda is this uh, recently divorced woman. Uh, Lily Tomlin is this, you know, single mom raising four kids. There is a lot of interesting female empowerment Themes And then we just move so far away from them where they're like mixing up a dead body or doing this. And it's like, I don't know where this all got lost, but um, it definitely did.
0: Yeah, it did. And I think there are moments of that that that, uh, illustrate those characters and their backgrounds. I mean, we have one scene of Lily Tomlin's character at home with her son and we see how she has to, you know, fix the garage door. She has to do it all. And and I like that relationship with her son, where he wasn't just a snotty teenager, like he was offering her the pot that leads to the terrible fantasy sequence. But I like that relationship because it showed this kind of camaraderie between the two of them. And he offers her pot and she takes yeah, it. Like it's, so, not it's a just re- realistic
1: relationship.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I did like the brief appearances from the ex-husband of Jane Fonda's character played by Lawrence Pressman. Uh, even in the later, more cartoonish part of the movie, where he shows up trying to get her back, and there's a stupid, wacky mix-up, but it leads to this moment of her saying, "Like, hey, if I want to, uh, you know, sleep with someone else, if I want to do crazy sex games, like, you don't control me anymore. I can do what I want." And that was a nice, funny moment, even if it's in the midst of a bunch of ridiculousness. I
1: mean, again, is it because it's 1980 and we've seen stuff like this, or is it just because it's so sloppy? That scene feels so unrealistic like she doesn't know what she calls s and m m and m and like this guy sees what's going on he's like what you're into sexy boo gaga and it's like none of that is what it is by the way that's lawrence pressman who we just saw as the coach in uh in american pie on a bonus episode that the uh, fans here will get soon enough
0: yeah uh, go to our patreon to download that episode and hear us not, I think ever mentioned Lawrence Pressman, but you know, lots of other great stuff. He's a, he's a character actor who's in like a million. Yeah. Episodes.
1: I mean, he has a more pertinent role in here than in American pie, but you know, yes,
0: yes, yes, he does. But I mean, to your point, I think, yeah, obviously it's ridiculous and and she doesn't understand what SM is, but I think that's part this is part of the humor, but it's also part of the point is like, it doesn't matter whether she understands S and M or actually is doing it. The point is that she can do what she wants because she's divorced this guy and he no longer controls her and shouldn't have controlled her in the first place. And that is one of those moments of what you're
1: talking about, sort of that had been lost from earlier but, in the film. But I'm saying it still gets lost there because not just her, he doesn't know either. Like they're both talking about s without having any knowledge of, of S&M. So he looks at what's going on and he assumes it's a sex game. And she doesn't know how to like convincingly say it. So like nothing is grounded there and it just falls apart for me.
0: Now, I mean, I thought that was one of the moments later in the film that that did work for me, but uh, we don't need to spend all this time on that. Well, did
1: moment. you watch it with your GIMP mask on?
0: <laughs> I would have had <laughs> trouble seeing it, I think, if I did
1: that. So. Josh, I have one more <laughs> quote for you. OK, yeah. Uh, funny, but one scene made me mad. A truly funny scene if the three gals had played getting drunk, but no, they had to get stoned on pot. It was an (laughs) endorsement of pot smoking for any young person who sees this picture. Ronald Reagan, president of the United States.
0: Yeah. Well, is it surprising that Ronald Reagan entirely missed
1: the political point of this film?
0: I don't think it is. It's
1: a. It's amusing to me. Like, why can't these gals just get drunk? Nothing bad ever happens if you're drunk. But if you're on the pot, ugh. Right. I mean, of course,
0: Reagan and and Nancy Reagan were all about the war on drugs. Uh, you know, at the at the time that he was the president. So not surprising that he would say. And
1: also they probably hated uh, the director who died from AIDS related complications. As we know, they were uh, bigoted against people with AIDS and gays. Not the point of this podcast, but let's,
0: Keep going. No, it's not. And of course, you know, uh, Jane Fonda, the left wing anti-war activist yeah. and uh, Lily Tomlin, the lesbian like and yeah. Dolly Parton,
1: the um, you know, she's able to use her sexuality to further her image, all things that really played well to the Reagan White House. Absolutely.
0: Um, so I, 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 I'm guessing from our discussion here that none of us had seen this film before. Is that right, Jason? No,
1: I had never seen it. I know it's so popular and legendary, and I love the song. And I, you know, I love like we said, we've talked about some really good office style comedy. So I was really looking forward to this one.
0: Yeah, I had never seen it either. I do also love the song, although my uh, initial exposure to the song. Came from the version by uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks that is on their 1980s album of movie theme songs that I listened to many, 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 many times as a child and was my introduction to uh, many famous movies and theme songs. Uh, some of the movies which I still have not seen, but um, <laughs> so I was familiar with this song. And maybe this speaks to your point about the song being sort of divorced from the movie. That I was familiar with that as a kid without really knowing anything about the movie, but. Had not seen it either, Uh, although I have been very uh, enthusiastic about Jane Fonda's uh, early work, as I talked about with Dave on a Piecing It Together podcast uh, when we talked about our first time watches of 2021. Jane Fonda in the 60s and 70s. Amazing. This is our first time getting to her, right? It is. It is. And she's done a lot of great work. And if we do more 60s and 70s seasons, I hope that we'll talk about her more. And she's fine in this one, but compared to some of the just like amazing dramatic work and the screen presence that she has in earlier films it's this is not uh, not up to that level but uh, I do think she's in a weird way kind of underrated even though she's a legend so Dave had you seen this before
2: I hadn't and I was one of those people that really just knew the song I didn't know anything about the movie really
0: yeah Um, and I think Dave you 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 probably he seems like you had a maybe slightly more positive response to this than we did (laughs)
2: Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it more later. But I mean, basically, that Ebert review nails it the way that I felt about it. Like, you know, once you take the movie on its level, like, I think it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll uh, get into that more then. We'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on 9 to 5. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this premiere of our season on the films of 1980, We are talking about Box Office Champion 925. And I think one of the things about this, uh, you know, we were talking about how a movie like this now wouldn't be number two at the box office. It wouldn't maybe even get a theatrical release. But one of the things I was thinking that also goes to that shift in tone that we're talking about as I was watching the early part of this film, which is satirical And really, you know, fairly incisive politically and silly, but still grounded. I thought it's amazing that this movie was such a hugely popular hit. And then as it gets into more and more of that cartoonish stuff, I definitely started thinking, like, okay, now I see how this was a hit. Now I see how this was a big crowd pleasing thing.
1: Yeah, I just like, I mean, I guess it was like 15 minutes of good. And, you know, then you got to the point where the three of them became friends which was very early on in the movie and that rivalry could have lasted longer i think you know i mean in a way what if the movie had been about the rivalry between the three and the fact that they were pitted against each other in the office until they became friends and worked together i think that structure is way more interesting you know uh, but again i didn't write this movie because i was a baby at the time it was released and uh no one offered it to me while I was pooping my diapers josh so but you know, they get together very early and they're friends. And then it's like, you know, we have these fantasy sequences. And then right after that, is that where they mistake his dead body? Right. Like, so there's that. And that's so whoopsie whoopsie easy. You know, there's a thing in movies where you can suspend your disbelief for one thing. But after that, you start questioning it. And it's like, man, this was not a hard thing to fix, to figure out. This like whole sequence was built on someone not asking a question or lifting a sheet up to look at a face, right? So then we get to that. And now these, these secretaries are in so far over their head that they got to kidnap this guy for six weeks. And it's like, okay, I was rooting for them at the beginning, but once they kidnapped him for six weeks, am I really rooting for anybody anymore? And is it believable that no one in the audience within those 6 weeks would be like, you know what? We haven't seen Frank Hart around the office at all. I know he's still sending memos, but we would expect to see him in an elevator or at lunch. Like none of it felt believable to me and that's where I was just like, I'm out, dog. Yeah, see, I and mean, this is where I disagree with you on some of this
0: because I still liked the characters even after they kidnap him because you know, they're not evil. And he mean first of all, he is evil, is, is is the way he's been established. And so you don't like him. And they are not cruel to him necessarily in their kidnapping of him. You know, they feed him and they keep him comfortable. Um, but no, I I mean I still I still liked these characters and to me, the worst, most ridiculous cartoonish part was that whole sequence with the dead body, where Lily Tomlin's character thinks that she's accidentally poisoned him, and uh, they go through this wacky misunderstanding uh, about uh, him at the hospital, and they're grabbing this other body because they think he's been killed. And I agree with you, and that is one thing that I really hate in comedies, is the idea of the misunderstanding that could be solved by one person saying one thing, or doing one very, very simple thing. but. That to me was the worst part. And I felt like once we got past that and we get into the kidnapping part, which was what I thought, having not seen this movie, but only knowing its reputation, was like the main point of the movie. I I thought that was fun. And yeah, I'll quote, yeah it's not believable from a realistic standpoint. But I think between the fantasy sequences and the dead body sequence, they've clearly established by that point that this is not a realistic
1: movie. And so I'm not concerned about all that believability. Yeah, I didn't think that was fun either. I was just like, really? He's he's on a, I mean, an electrical garage door for six weeks and everyone just believes everything. His wife believes he's on an exercise program, right? And all this stuff. And I don't know. And then you get, you know, everything, you had these grounded women, And then they're doing something so not grounded. And then the supporting characters in the office are really not grounded either. Right. You know, you got the one lady who's just a lush. That's her character. She's a lush. Right. And then you have the kiss up lady. And it's just like there's just there's just too much muck and mire that um, as talented as the three leads are. And Dabney Coleman, very talented. There's. Yeah, absolutely. He's great at playing this awful, hateable boss. Yeah. There's just not. There's not, nothing there. Even Sterling Hayden, who's like a screen legend, when he came in, I mean, I just felt that character was so big too. I just it just didn't, I don't know, man. I think I turned off and when I turned off, there was nothing that turned me back on. Whereas you're saying there was something.
0: Yeah, not to the same level. I mean, the first, and I think longer than you're saying, I, I liked the way that they became friends. I wouldn't have wanted to see a whole movie about them. Uh, not being friends and being pitted against each other because they can't, you know, they're not savvy enough to understand why. I, I liked that they became friends up until the point where they're getting together smoking pot and having those fantasy sequences. I was like, this is great. Um, and then eventually I came around back to, eh, it's pretty good. It's it's mildly enjoyable. But I, Jason, I feel like, I don't know if you thought of this, but I feel like your response to this movie and our disagreement on it is very similar to our discussion of how to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying hmm. from our 1967 <laughs> season, which I know you hated.
1: Yeah, I I didn't think of that. Um, but another movie, I would say, and, and that influence, that this influence, Horrible Bosses, I kind of felt the same way. It's like you have these relationships between these characters, and then there's a promise of something that doesn't come to fruition. And I don't know who I'm supposed to be rooting for anymore. And yeah, I I, I guess uh, I guess you make a good point, Josh. An office comedy has to really be homed in for me to like it. And uh, if more directors and producers do that, you know, would we be better off as a society? Probably.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I definitely thought of how to succeed in business, not knowing your reaction. So not specifically about that, but just in the way that a lot of stuff is represented in this film. Um, the whole thing with the company where
1: it's this giant company and no one no, really knows yeah. what the company does. It's like con- yeah. Consolidated Corporation. Is that what it's called?
0: Right. Yeah. Something like Well, that.
1: Josh, I, I want to hear the rest of what you're saying, but even that was very difficult to understand. Like they could catch Franklin Hart in a fraud if they got these invoices, but it wasn't really clear how, and it wasn't necessarily that clear how he was able to avoid it. like. Did you find any of that very easy to uh, follow?
0: I mean, I don't know if I needed all the like very fine details of it. I thought the broad strokes of it, which was that he was embezzling from the company. They needed these documents in order to prove that. And that was why they had to wait the four to six weeks, because that's how long it took the documents to arrive. And then, you know, he thwarts them there when he manages to escape by covering up his crime. I think that's really all that you need to know. And I I fairly well understood that. And I thought also the whole thing about invoices and ledgers and whatever also went to the idea of this being a sort of an inscrutable company that does things that nobody really knows about. I mean, Lily Tomlin's character clearly understands everything. I mean, that's her character is the person who's super competent, but. The comedy of it is that everything that they do is meaningless and yet they all take it super seriously. I think that's part of the corporate satire that was similar to the corporate satire and how to succeed in business and is similar to what we get in something like Office Space.
1: I mean, Office Space is just a whole nother level of goodness. I don't think there's a comparison, but that's okay. um Josh, also at the end, when we find out, I mean, the secretaries have been implementing these new programs. And they've been working and that's great. Like, I like that. But wouldn't it have been awesome if we had a scene at the beginning with another character who's saying, I'm having trouble keeping up. I don't know how I'm supposed to get my kid here or there. And like, we have some kind of basis for why they implemented the daycare center at the work and stuff like that. There was just no build to any of that.
0: I mean, we do have the scene of that character, Maria Delgado, being fired because she dares to discuss people's salaries. I I, I feel like if you don't understand the the need for daycare or the need for like- It's
1: not a matter of understanding. I'm saying there was no emotional resonance.
0: uh, Okay, okay. I mean, I didn't think that that was something that was necessary. I feel like it's just sort of obvious um, that they're taking care of the needs of, of people. And I think there was enough established between that scene of the one character being fired And, uh, you know, we have the the lush character, as you talk about the woman who's always drinking on the job, who manages to uh, kick her habit, thanks to the uh, alcohol treatment program that's introduced. I don't think you need, I mean, I think this also goes to Jane Fonda's point when they're trying to conceive of this movie and they start with it as a drama, is that the more time you spend lecturing the audience about here are workplace problems and here is how we will fix them, the more you're going to lose the audience. And you know, maybe this movie lost us in a lot of ways by becoming super cartoonish, but obviously that was how it it got the mainstream audience of
1: 1980 and became a big hit. Right, and it, and it's comedy, and we always argue, does comedy, are what comedy holds up over time and what doesn't, and to me, this just didn't. But, you know, Josh, we've talked about Patricia Resnick and Colin Higgins, and it's like, Patricia Resnick, you know, we covered three women, That's one that she helped Robert Altman like craft as a story. And she worked with him on a bunch of stuff. Colin Higgins wrote Harold and Maude. These guys are better than this. I mean, sure, but this is a movie that's not
0: aiming to be Three Women or Harold and Maude.
1: This is a broad comedy. No, I'm just saying with credentials like that, you can't tell me that they couldn't have written a better workplace comedy.
0: I I think that they could. I think that they could, but I think that they weren't trying to. I think that they were trying to write something broad and silly and that for us as viewers that wasn't what we wanted. And I wish they had written something that was like the first 30 minutes of the movie the whole time. But obviously mainstream audiences
1: liked what they came up with. Yeah, again, 1980 different time, I don't know. Dave, you liked it. Why?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that once things start getting cartoonish, you know the the weed smoking scene, it, you expect it to go back to you know a little bit more just straightforward satire, and it absolutely doesn't. It just doubles down on that. The rest of the story becomes just this total live action cartoon, and I just thought that that was a really fun, silly way to do this movie. And I, I wasn't expecting it, and I think the three leads are all just so great that they're so much fun to watch. And uh, Dabney Coleman is great. A lot of the supporting. Characters are great in their little scenes. You know, Jason, you keep, you know, talking about, like, why this isn't, like, a, you know, a smarter or, like, you know, more, you know, focused in on on those kind of workplace issues and stuff. But, I mean, this is just about as broad of a comedy as you can get. You mentioned Horrible Bosses. I think that's a good uh, analogy. I was also thinking The Hangover. You know, this is just broad, broad comedy, which isn't very smart I mean, when it comes down to it. And it, I think it's disguised as it's supposed to be smart because well, of that opening, but it's well, not. But that
1: opening is 15 to 30 minutes. So it's a tonal shift that I just couldn't come back from. If the beginning, if these were the expectations set, and I'm not against the shifting tone. I just think this one didn't work. And um, to me, because like, and I think Josh agrees, like, we liked those first 30 minutes. We wanted, we saw the potential of that. It just, it just didn't recover in that regard. And I don't think the shift worked in this one. So anyway, I don't want to keep repeating myself on it.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think Dave, to your point is that like, it is smart and it's disappointing when it's plays itself dumb because we know it can be smart and we know it has been smart and it is. It's not just that these filmmakers worked on stuff like Three Women and Harold and Maude, it's that, first part of this movie is smart.
1: Right. And then yeah. they just abandon that. Well, and so, well, Josh, to that point, don't you think like you're talking about that sequence with the dead body and you, we both agree like, Hey, if someone just asked one question or did one thing that didn't bother you, Dave, like we, the, don't you think that's below the level of intelligence that these women have shown already in the movie?
2: To that point, I will say one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years, good time. Uh, Robert Pattinson never thinks to check if it's actually his brother under the sheet. And yeah. he, he, he kidnaps the wrong guy out of the uh, hospital.
0: I mean, two things. A, I hate that movie. But B, <laughs> that character is supposed to be stupid.
2: Yeah. A good yeah. time. And these sure. characters
0: are not. I Fair enough. But yeah. but it
2: is a cartoon. And so they, they're silly. They're goofy. Maybe they're not stupid, but they are goofy. Yeah. So, All right. Yeah.
0: Well, should we uh, should we rate this, Jason, yeah. out of five uh, poison
1: cups of coffee, maybe? Sure, Josh. I thought about this because mm-hmm. usually something like this, I would give two and a half. That's like my bar of like, oh, it's competently crafted. It's, you know, there's some good elements. But I was so disappointed when with how this turned out. This gets two stars for me. So maybe it's our two uh, poison cups of coffee. Maybe it is like how to succeed in business. I was just so disappointed in it that I can't go above two stars. All right, fair enough. Right, (laughs) exactly.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I I was sort of the opposite in that I was thinking, yeah, two and a half is usually my baseline for like, there's something here, but it didn't really work for me. Um, But I came around enough towards the end that I'm gonna give it three poison cups of coffee. It's still fun overall. And obviously a lot of people have a lot of fun with it. And the song is great.
1: This is why no one respects you as a critic.
0: (laughs) I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that is something that you've also said when I've been too harsh on films. So just a blank.
1: I mean, I respect
0: you. I, I, I respect Thank you. you as a critic. All right. Thank you, Jason. Dave, uh, how do you want to rate this?
2: Well, first of all, Jason does not respect me as a critic, but- uh, Wait a
1: second, Dave. Yes. Or as a film composer and questionable yes. as a human being.
2: <laughs> or a podcast producer. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm going with four, but uh, it, if it wasn't for the song, it might've been a three and a half. So. That's
1: still, that's still strong. The song is at yeah. least a four for me, but
0: uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Right. That song, that song is an all time. Yeah. One. That's a, that's a, maybe a five. Yeah. You
2: might be right.
1: right that's there. the best yeah. part of the movie for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we'll come back then and talk about the legacy of nine to five. Welcome back to awesome movie year in this premiere of our season on the films of 1980. We are talking about Box Office Champion 9 to 5. And there's a lot of legacy to this film, some of which we've kind of touched on. Uh, the popularity of this song, this theme song, which, as Jason pointed out, probably has eclipsed the film, at least to some degree, is an enduring, one of Dolly Parton's biggest hits of all time. Of course, iconically covered by Alvin and the Chipmunks, as I mentioned. Mm. And um, just just a, a, a huge thing in pop culture for Dolly Parton. But more immediately, I mean, given that this movie was such a, a huge success, it was adapted into a TV series in uh, starting in 1982 that ran eventually for five seasons, first on ABC and then uh, was revived after a brief uh, period being off the air in first run syndication for three more seasons uh, with a lot of cast turnover and tonal shift, it sounds like. Uh, initially, it was a straight adaptation with these characters, starring uh, Valerie Curtin as the Jane Fonda character, Rita Moreno as Lily Tomlin's character, and Rachel Denison, who is Dolly Parton's sister, playing Dolly Parton's character, along with mm. Jeffrey Tambor as Mr. Hart. But I, I just watched like it's not available to stream anywhere. I found the pilot, the first episode, on YouTube in a really, really low quality version where I didn't even want to watch the whole thing. But I watched the first maybe five minutes or so. And it really seems like they've restructured it as just a basic workplace sitcom. Like Mr. Hart is a kind of a bumbling boss and the secretaries have their own little things. And I, I, you know, it ran for five seasons, so people obviously enjoyed it, but it it seems like whatever satirical aspect existed in the uh, movie was Kind of set
1: aside for this basic workplace sitcom. Josh, did you find any Vincent Camby quotes on Rachel Dennison?
0: I did not look for those, um, but no, he was a he was only a film critic and not a t- TV critic. Rachel Dennison, very weird career, basically uh, got cast as her sister, did uh, five seasons of this sitcom
1: and never acted again. She's just, so, just probably got a lot of money from Dolly Parton. Uh, Sally right. Struthers took over as Violet in those later seasons. And we should also mention it had Herb Edelman, who we know from Wheels on Meals and, of course, as Stanley Zbornak in The Golden Girls.
0: Oh, yeah, very important. Also, uh, Peter Bonners took over as Mr. Hart later, and then they got rid of that character entirely in the later like fourth and fifth seasons. And it sounded like as as it went on further it got more and more away from the characters and concepts of the initial movie.
1: I mean, is Workaholics almost a reversal of this? I guess
0: right with the three <laughs> slacking off uh, male employees and their female boss. Yeah,
1: who's a dick to them?
0: Yeah, but isn't Workaholics the whole idea is that they don't they don't try and they're not competent at their jobs, which is sort of the opposite of of this?
1: Hey, Josh, they also made a musical yes. of Nine to Five in the late two thousands powerhouse cast, Megan Hilty, Allison Janney, Stephanie Block, directed by Joe Montillo or Montillo. Yeah. And uh, with the songs written by Dolly Parton. So of
0: course, in addition to that uh, iconic theme song, other Dolly Parton songs and the book written by Patricia Resnick. So that whole kind of original team coming back together, it seems like it wasn't a very successful stage musical. It's
1: still touring though. So is it maybe not a huge Broadway hit, but I mean, it played Broadway, it played West End, it played all over. Um, yeah. Patricia Resnick also, I think wrote Straight Talk, the Dolly Parton movie with her and James Woods, who, if you really want to know what's going on with the world, follow him on social media. He's, oh, no. he, Let's not. he's right down the middle all the time. Let's not get into that. <laughs> but yeah, Patricia
0: Resnick worked a lot, uh, in, in TV as a writer as well, worked on Mad Men and Tales of the City and, and is uh, was a writer on, uh, Better Things, the Pamela Adlon show, which is a recent thing. Yeah. Um, And did, yeah, work with Dolly Parton on Straight Talk. Colin Higgins also worked again with Dolly Parton. His next and final film was The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Um, That was Dolly Parton's next major film role. And uh, sadly, as you said, he uh, passed away in 1988 at the age of 47, died of AIDS. And and so that was the final film that he made. Uh, He only ever made three feature films in his career. And and as I was saying, Dolly Parton. I mean, she she acts and she's done some uh, very popular things between *Best Little Whorehouse* and *Steel Magnolias* and the notorious flop that I think we almost covered in our 1984 season, *Rhinestone* mm. with her and uh, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, She recently had a popular Christmas movie on Netflix called Christmas on the Square, but she definitely did not have the film career that people like Siskel and Ebert imagined she would after this.
1: And maybe she didn't want it. I mean, she's a country singing legend. She has got, you know, Dollywood. She is a, a philanthropist. Like, she, I, I'm not joking. She's a national treasure. I love Dolly Parton and her music's amazing.
0: Right. No, you're absolutely right. And, and she does do so many other things and, and still very focused on her music career that maybe this wasn't something that she wanted to do. You know, she did this movie where the part was written for her and she worked with people who, you know, she knew and was friends with. And maybe that was, she only kind of wanted to come in and make movies when that could be the case.
1: And I remember that. I think during the Super Bowl, I don't even remember what it was for. She had a a commercial with Miley Cyrus, and I was just like, what is going on here? This doesn't, but, and then didn't she remake, nine to five for the Squarespace commercial, it was five to nine.
0: Yeah. And that's unfortunate because I think the point of that is like, hey, after you work your nine to five, now you yeah. can do your side hustle, which seems right. like entirely antithetical to the like message of this film. But
1: I told you the message <laughs> is lost after the first 15 minutes, Josh. I um, guess it was
0: lost on Dolly Parton
1: after the first, you know, after 50 or, you know, 30 years or whatever that was. Jane Fonda, as you said, legend, she's won everything, you know, two Academy Awards, two BAFTAs, seven Golden Globes, an Emmy, you know, the uh, just about everything there is to win. And she and Lily Tomlin, of course, reteamed for the longest running show ever to air on Netflix, which is Grace and Frankie. And a quick story about that, that I recently heard on the Indie Film Hustle podcast, which I love and have shouted out here before. Uh, with Alex Ferrari, he said that both Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin were looking to get into TV at this point in their careers. And Marta Kaufman, the famous TV producer, called their agents and said, "Um, so what's up? And the agent called back in 15 minutes and said, well, they were both just looking to get into TV on their own. But now that they know you're interested, they just said they want to do it together with you. And uh, Grace and Frankie, huge hit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Huge hit and is coming up to its final episodes. And I think Dolly Parton is set to guest star on it. So they'll yes. have a nice little reunion. And I think the funny thing to to, to my uh, continued endorsement of Jane Fonda's greatness is that because what happened was basically, you know, she was this massive star in the 1980s and she had those exercise the wor- videos. The
1: workout videos were yeah, huge.
0: Hugely popular. And then in 1990, she essentially retired from acting and for 15 years didn't appear in anything, and then decided to make this comeback starting in 2005 and has been consistently acting since then in awful, awful stuff. And I think because I had just seen that stuff, um, I didn't give credence to how great she could be until I finally started watching some of those older films. So I wish she would she do something. you have a favorite? Um, Barbarella is amazing. Um, Clute, which she won an Oscar for, yeah. she's so, so good. Uh, Include in Coming
1: Home or her two Oscars.
0: Yeah, and I haven't seen Coming Home or uh, on "On Golden Pond, which is later, which she was nominated sure. for an Oscar for, but uh, also The China Syndrome from, I think, 1979, a little earlier, which is a very much a message movie, but yep. is an incredible drama um, with great performances from her and Jack Lemmon and Michael Douglas. So those three movies, I think, that I saw at various points for various reasons, each one of those, I was just blown away by her performances in those films. Amazing
1: that you go from that to Monster-in-Law.
0: Right, exactly. And sadly, <laughs> I had first seen stuff like Monster-in-Law and Georgia Rule with Lindsay Lohan. And just, I, you know, maybe she just decided she was bored and that's why she wanted to come back. It definitely didn't seem like there was some great project that lured her back. And the, her filmography since 2005 is pretty you know, pretty dreadful.
1: She and Lily Tomlin are supposed to be in a new movie from Paul White, speaking of American Pie, a long time ago in this episode called Moving On. Two old friends reconnect at a funeral and decide to get revenge on the widower who messed with them decades before. That sounds like a fun project for those two, right? Yeah, it could be fun. And I, you know, to be fair, I haven't seen every single movie that she's made in the
0: last, uh, you know, 17 years, and maybe there's some gems in there. But overall, I feel like she hasn't,
1: yeah, and she's a legend. She can do whatever she wants. She doesn't need to. Yeah, they are all legends. Right. These are all legends, right? Lily Tomlin, uh, Grammy for This is a Recording, I think, in 1972, Best Comedy Album. Six Emmys. We know an amazing live presence. Uh, you know, Nashville, Shortcuts, Moving On, uh, as I just said, uh, is the new one with her. So we 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 want to see all these women just continue to build their legacy.
0: Yeah. And I think Lily Tomlin maybe puts a little more effort into finding some challenging projects. Uh, Also in the American Pie episode, I mentioned the indie film Grandma that she made with Julie Garner, which is kind of an underrated film uh, about the grandmother
1: taking her teenage granddaughter for an abortion. And we might have mentioned it on the Late Show episode. Not the Late Show. Is that what we saw? Yeah, the Late Late Show. Show? Yes, in our
0: 77 season as well. So I just keep shouting out that movie over and over again.
1: I Heart Huckabees. She's so good in I Heart Huckabees, which is such an offbeat film.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's, I mean, maybe even underrated in terms of her range as an actor and not just as a comedian.
1: Well, speaking of actors, that's called a professional transition, Nice work there, buddy. Mm -hmm. Dabney Coleman... I mean, has been working nonstop, both in TV and film, basically, since he started his career. He's 90. He's still working. Um, you know, in the last decade, most of us would know him as the Commodore on Boardwalk Empire, where he's really just a a real bastard, an intimidating bastard, you know? Yes. Um, but, you know, Towering Inferno, War Games, Viva Kid Evil, you know, Mad Men of the People, stuff like that. He's won uh, an Emmy. And uh, just, um, yeah, uh, the new one is called Someday, Sometime, a song tore them apart 20 years ago. Can a new melody erase decades of mistakes and bring them together again? I don't really care to find out, but that's yeah, the movie. But he's working,
0: like you say he's 90. And at he's 90, working. yeah. He was. He guest starred on Yellowstone. I mean, he's, he's everywhere. And he was great on Boardwalk Empire. And, and another one of those roles where he's just really good at playing
1: an awful person that you really hate. But, I mean, well, look, we're talking about two different types of hateable people, right? In this one, you know, he plays the comedy. In Boardwalk Empire, he's just uh, malicious and and nasty, right? There's a whole different side, and it it shows a really good range as an actor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So uh, anything else we want to talk about on the legacy of this
1: film? Uh, Look, they've talked about um, sequels on this thing forever. It probably will never happen. Um, I did think, I think, uh, one of them, maybe Jen Fonda said it should be called 24 seven, which plays to the five to nine thing that we just talked about. So um, I got I got nothing else uh, about this, Josh. We mentioned Sterling Hayden. We should just say another screen legend, uh, Asphalt Jungle, Johnny Guitar, The Killing, Dr. Strangelove, The Godfather, The Long Goodbye. Like you can't you can't do much better than that.
0: Yeah. And this was one. I think he was in maybe two or three more films after this. And so this was one of the, the last things that he did. Um, But yeah, certainly a legend and someone who comes in with that presence when he shows up at the end of the film. Um, And people would know, you know, all of that stuff that he'd done before when he shows up there. So. So that is nine to five. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on
1: social media. You can. Once you're done looking through James Woods social media, which again, don't do that. Don't do that. Nothing
0: but the truth.
1: Right, Josh? James
0: Woods. No, stop
1: with that. Do you think do you think you needed to do that? You don't think people would have known the sarcasm. I don't him?
0: know if you just know him as an actor and you haven't been plugged into this. You
1: might you might go there and check it out and and, and think I was really recommending it. All right. Well, I'll recommend our socials instead. Thank Josh. you. Thank you. Awesome movie here on Facebook and Instagram. Although our Instagram is basically irrelevant. Awesome movie pod on Twitter. Awesome movie year dot com. I'm Jason Harris comedy or J Harris comedy on all those things. I've been doing more shows. If you guys want to come out to one, hit me up. My website, GoForJason, not only doesn't work from nine to five, it doesn't work at all. Maybe you need Squarespace.
0: Ooh. <laughs> mm. uh, my website also doesn't do a whole lot. That is Josh com. I'm also at Josh Bell hates Everything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together.
2: Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod.
0: Jason, what are we talking about in our next episode?
1: Well, Josh, we do shuffles here and there, but I think we might stick to an old school schedule on this one and go with our first feature. Speaking of comedies, man, does it get any more legendary than Caddyshack, Harold Ramis's first directorial film? We'll discuss it next time on Awesome Movie Year. So tune
2: in next time for Caddyshack, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
0: An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.